Welcome to Strategy Talk, where the editors of Strategy Page discuss current events with a splash of history. I'm Dan Masterson, host of Strategy Talk. With me today is the editor of Strategy Page, well-known military author and game designer, Jim Dunnigan. Also joining us is the associate editor of Strategy Page, columnist and author, Austin Bay. Welcome, Austin and Jim. Thought we'd talk a little bit about One Belt, One Road this uh, morning. We've written quite a bit about this, Jim. Um, what is One Belt, One Road? It's an ambitious uh, Chinese plan, which sort of developed, how should I put it, independent of the government. But in 2013, you know, somebody at the, at the highest levels of the government, uh, you know, put it all together as it were, stood back and looked at the big picture and said, oh, my God, we're, we're not only rebuilding the Silk Road, we're building a... Um, a, a, a maritime, you know, uh, Silk Road, as it were. Um, so the government decided to uh, get behind it officially and give it a name. And it's been downhill since then. The uh, The original initiative actually started, oh, I guess as early as oh, 2006, 2008, when uh, Chinese firms started to uh, invest in infrastructure in Central Asia, uh, the five, especially the five, the former Soviet republics, uh, <coughs> uh, cleverly known as the Stans, so they all all their names end in Stan, and um, they, because the Chinese were not only expanding into eastern, far eastern Russia, uh, where the Russians did not really want that kind of Chinese investment. Uh, but the Sands had were a different situation. Uh, they were generally poor, with one exception, that has oil, a lot of it. And um, they needed help, and uh, they basically appreciated the uh, you know the Chinese providing uh, uh, less expensive and and better quality goods than the Soviet Union ever could. They were simply convenient. Uh, they were there. Well, as time went on, the stands grew a little leery of the Chinese. Belt and Road wasn't seen as an economic expansion. It was seen as an invasion. And that is basically what you know, brought about uh, you know, my recent article, History Bites Back, you know, in strategy page. Uh, the, uh, the Chinese didn't mean it to be an invasion, uh, but there was uh, suddenly the, uh, how should I put it, the concept of debt trap came up. Now, this, again, wasn't something the Chinese had, I don't think they consciously thought about this, but they would overbuild, you know, airfields, uh, port facilities, and what have you, uh, and not really look at the ability of the uh, of the host nation uh, to pay these debts, to make it a, a self-sustaining, uh, you know, entity. And there was this huge port they had built um, in uh, Sri Lanka, which is that, that island state, you know, on the southern tip of, uh, of India, and uh, the Chinese company exercised an option in the contract where they basically assumed the debt, as it were, uh, and uh, 49%, whatever, you know, uh, it, it all looked good on paper, but the Chinese now basically own that port, and they can theoretically do whatever they want. Uh, the Sri Lanki, the Sri Lankans say, no, 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 no. We have a small navy. We have uh, relations, however, you know, hostile at times with India, uh, and we wouldn't let that happen. But that that set off alarms in many of the other Southeast Asian and South Asian nations uh, that are uh, being approached, as it were, uh, 
uh, with these investment opportunities. The Philippines is one of the recent examples. The Chinese aren't investing in a big way yet, but they are claiming a large chunk of uh, of uh, uh, Filipino offshore uh, waters, uh, which the Filipino Philippines even got a an international court ruling. Uh, you know, basically affirming what was already understood to be the fact that according to international law, which China had signed on to, uh, uh, China was claiming uh, areas that were not theirs, that belonged to the Philippines. Uh, the Chinese simply ignored it and said the court hasn't got jurisdiction. You know, the usual routine. Uh, but that's another story. But it unfortunately fed into this paranoia, which may be somewhat justified, that the Chinese are trying to buy their way into these countries with more than just economic intent. Now, East Africa is another you know, area where the Chinese have been very active. Uh, they are building ports, they are building railroads, they are building roads. Uh, you name it, the Chinese are there. And they have already made themselves, how should I put it, unpopular uh, because of two things. One, in Central Africa, they are the major players in the illegal, or, or sometimes it's, uh, how should I put it, uh, legal graft, uh, quasi-legal mining operations that bring out uh, uh, key metals needed for, for example, coltan, which is an essential uh, you know, uh, item for microelectronics, especially, for example, cell phones. Um, and uh, they basically, you know, as is their, their, their practice, they don't care how you do it as long as you do it, and they'll pay, which means they, they basically do business with all sorts of thugs and outlaws and what have you, um, and ignore, they, they just ignore any foreign criticism. Uh, now, that's very attractive to a lot of governments, which are constantly being, you know, uh, tripped up, up by the West, which saying, look, we're only going to do this ethically. We're not going to break laws and what have you, uh, which is a good idea in general, because the biggest problem with a lot of these, especially in Africa countries, is the corruption, uh, where even if you give money to the to the uh, country for, uh, you know, infrastructure building or education or whatever, most of it gets stolen. And the people it's intended for never get it. That's been going on for decades. Um, uh, the Chinese say, hey, look, you know, it's your country, yada, yada. Uh, but they're noting that in these contracts, which are reasonable, you know, uh, you know reasonable uh, uh, conditions, that if you can't pay, can't make your payments, uh, the builder, usually a almost always a consortium of Chinese companies, will basically default. They will take over. Um, and if the local law uh, declares that you know foreign entities can't own more than you know fifty percent or whatever, they'll abide by that. And so it's all perfectly legal. But the fact of the matter is, you got Chinese, literally Chinese, uh, imported from China, security guards at these uh, ports running all the security and basically deciding who can go where. Now that that really hacks off the locals. Uh, in addition, the Chinese, of course bring in their own labor for these projects, which means less of that money spent on these facilities goes to, you know, creating local jobs because the Chinese, in order to guarantee completion on time and to whatever quality standards, uh, they bring in their own labor force. And if they can, and most of these countries don't really care, especially if you pay a bribe, uh, a lot of the Chinese stay behind. They start businesses. And you're seeing that, you know, the overseas Chinese are, 
are famous for their entrepreneurship and their their basically uh, their their ability to you know provide uh, cheaper services, but they're all foreigners. And you know the foreigners saying, why are all the stores run by Chinese? That wasn't like that before. Of course, in, in many of those instances, there were no stores before, but that's another issue. Uh, it spread into North Africa. You know, any place where the Chinese are making major investments, these are their conditions. And they basically will not, will not yet anyway, uh, you know, negotiate on that. They want Chinese workers, Chinese labor, uh, if they want to get this stuff done on time. And they basically build it to their, you know, standards, which are, you know, higher than the African standards, somewhat lower than Western standards. I mean, Western engineers come in and look at some of the railroads and say, eh, not bad. In some cases, it's pretty shoddy. Uh, but anyway, it's better than what the, they would get if they were built by, you know, the local African construction firms or whatever. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that Chinese are doing it on such a massive scale. The OBOR is, is basically slated to spend over a trillion dollars uh, of, of investment by the Chinese um, in these, these basically these, these infrastructure. That's for want of a better term. They're, they're all basically infrastructure. And, of course, the idea, the Chinese make no mistake about this, the one belt, one road, is to assure, as they say, you know, Chinese ability to move their goods. Uh, all the way, well, both ways, as it were, because one of the main, there are six, uh, how should I put it, uh, lines, as it were, landlines going out. One of them goes into Pakistan, uh, one of the other one, two of them go into South, uh, Southeast Asia, um, and the others are going through uh, Central Asia. Um, and plus the big one goes right through the South China Sea, uh, the Malacca Straits, and into the Indian Ocean. And this doesn't make the Indians feel very uh, comfortable uh, because the Indian Ocean is named the Indian Ocean for a reason. Uh, and they take it very seriously. But the Chinese are out building the, the Indians in terms of uh, warships. Uh, the, uh, we've written about that, why the Indians can't build warships and the Chinese can. Um, and uh, they basically feel threatened. As they say they should, I suppose, because if the Chinese ever decide to turn the screws, they have a lot more screws they can turn, and they all, uh, you know, do things that the Indians don't like. So there's also a danger to China. This is something that often isn't covered. China has a banking problem that is similar to what happened in Japan in the 1990s. Now, those of us old timers who remember the pre Cold War days or the early 90s. Japan Incorporated, as it was called, was going to take over the world economy. I mean, they were they were huge. They were growing. But they had uh, internal problems. They had a lot of internal corruption. Uh, you know, excess – it sounds familiar. It's what's happening in China. Excess uh, infrastructure construction mainly to provide jobs. It was political. And it wasn't as bad as in China. And it was fairly typical of East Asia. You know, South Korea's had it. Taiwan to a lesser extent, but, you know, it's, it's there. And um, it's not unknown in the West as well. But uh, in Japan, it caused a real estate bubble, which was really getting out of control. At one point, uh, Tokyo real estate was the most expensive in the world. And then all of a sudden, you know, these things are like, uh, you know, uh, musical chairs. <laughs> the music stops and, and uh, you know, if, when the banking system finds there aren't enough chairs to sit down on, Bingo! The, the, this financial system locks up. We got a we got a taste of that in two thousand um, and eight. And what happened was the Japanese managed to avoid the default, but they locked up 
their economic system. They didn't destroy it, but they took out the growth. The Chinese, you know, the Japanese incorporated was no longer a threat. They basically uh, went into decline, not great decline, but they stopped growing rapidly. And uh, they basically, their economy has been static ever since. They have not been able to get out of it. Now, the Chinese noticed this and they deliberately took uh, steps, in theory anyway, to avoid that. But now they're doing the same thing. That the unique problem in China is that half the bank credit is, is gobbled up the loans uh, by uh, state-owned enterprises, SOEs as they call them. Now, these are terribly inefficient. Uh, and the only reason they still exist is, sound familiar, for political purposes. The Chinese Communist government is pretends, well, they operate like a police state in that respect. Uh, uh, but they basically understand they need <coughs> the support of the population. They paid very close attention to what happened in Eastern Europe in between 1989 and 1991 when the huge communist, all those communist governments went poof. Uh, that scared them. Um, and they've been trying to avoid it. But now they find themselves walking into the same problems, both in Eastern Europe and in Japan, that they know about and they're trying to avoid and they really don't know what to do. Uh, and it's a serious problem for them. Uh, and nice thing about China is they will talk about a lot of these things in open sources. You know, they basically want to get that. I mean, the, the Chinese Communist Party has what over 50 million members, uh, so they don't even bother trying to pass stuff around in secret, you know, documents or what have you. And the Russians did the same thing for certain items. Uh, they publish, you know, professional articles, professional journals, and what have you, even military stuff. And they're basically and the economists are openly talking about this, how this is the problem, which I've just described, how are we going to solve it? They have no solution. And now they have the problem with this huge investment in the One Belt, One Road, which is running into enormous problems, not just with the paranoia and the corruption and the, and the potential debt traps, debt trap diplomacy, which as far as anyone can tell, the Chinese never planned. You know, that was not the plan. It's something they wanted to avoid. Uh, but you know, in, in a couple of cases, especially in Sri Lanka, boom, uh, they basically way overbuilt. They thought they, they basically thought that this thing could sustain itself, but the, for whatever reason, without going into the details of that, it didn't. It couldn't, and they had to take it over, and they're taking a loss on that. Now, that that is a bad bet, and the problem is a lot of the construction uh, uh projects in Central Asia and in East Africa are similar. Uh, now, Southeast Asian nations are, how should I put it, like Thailand and uh, Burma and what have you, they are in better shape financially and diplomatically, and they are giving the Chinese a hard time for purely political reasons. They say, hey, wait a minute, because basically the Thais in particular, who are notorious tough negotiators. That's why they, they were one of the few countries that was never colonized, you know, in Asia. Um, they, they basically really busted the, the Chinese chops on the terms of some of these, these, uh, these, these OVOR deals. And the uh, Chinese had to basically backtrack and backtrack and backtrack. Um, but that's a minor thing because the big money is going to other places like Pakistan, 
where the Chinese had basically got the Pakistanis to establish a separate a, a separate army just to protect the 50,000 or so Chinese nationals uh, working in Pakistan. Uh, and that may eventually come a cropper because they still have a terrorism problem in, in Pakistan and it's not going away. The uh, Central Asia is even worse because all these countries are fiercely independent and the Chinese are finding out they may be building, you know, a, a, a new railroad, but it still has to go through, you know, six or seven different jurisdictions that they never had to worry about, you know, when the Soviet Union existed. And all of them are asking for a little extra, you know, uh, legally and illegally and what have you. And, um, and a lot, some of these countries are starting to see the Chinese investments as a, as a, how should I put it, another kind of opportunity. In other words, to shake the Chinese down. And the Chinese don't like that. But the government is in a bad position because they've already declared it in 2013 to be an official government program. So it's turning into a huge potential mess, which will not only cost the Chinese a lot of money, but a lot of these are, are bad loans the Chinese government are mandating that's what happens with the state-owned enterprises. When the state-owned enterprise, which account for 20% of the jobs, 20% of the economic activity, and half the uh, half the bad credit, half the bank loans, uh, and, and, a, and a disproportionate number of bad loans, uh, when that happens, uh, the bankers are saying, "Look, you know, if, if we get caught in a in a uh, in a in a bind here, uh, you know, the, the more you the more you push these bad loans on us." Uh, uh, the more likely it is we're going to have a huge, uh, uh, you know, a potentially uh, disastrous financial crisis. Uh, so, you know, forget the, uh, the you know, the, what you see in the media about the Chinese, you know, marching across Central Asia, you know, to the Middle East and what have you. Uh, what's happening with OBAR is more of a danger to China than it is to anyone else. Austin? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, let me... Uh call attention and listeners to a, a couple of things that uh, they can that they can look at uh, there's a recent essay update that uh, Jim put out about uh, China's and, and and history and the Chinese government trying to rely on Chinese history as a guide to what they uh, they confront uh, today and it gets into a list of Chinese internal vulnerabilities. Also, this week, my uh, creator syndicate column uh, on point uh, about the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade deal as a weapon against Chinese imperialism, that also lists some of these in, in more detail than we're doing here on Strategy Talk, some of the uh, vulnerabilities, and describes how that uh, new, what they're calling it, USMCA or NEO-NAFTA, but it's uh, it's really a revised NAFTA is, is what it amounts to, uh, is a way to uh, undermine or attack the uh, Chinese economy and its wealth producing capacity, wealth producing at the expense of the rest of the world. And that's another place that they're vulnerable, especially when they're strung out on OBAR. Now, one Belt, One Road was the original name uh, that comes out of 2013, 2014. Earlier this year, 2018, the Chinese began using something called the BRI, the BRI, Belt and Road Initiative. It's the same uh, same operation, but you'll see that in, uh, in, 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 in some commentary. 
And uh, my new book, Cocktails from Hell, which comes out in early December, uh, the China and South China Sea chapter has a uh, more background on Obar, Brie, even though the, like I say, Brie is now the preferred Beijing term for this, uh, well, monstrosity is what it is. And as Jim said, it's a real threat to them. It's also hooked to the what I've started calling China's national imperialism. That term crops up in my latest latest column because <clears throat> the Chinese government wants to have uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, oh, one belt, one road, done by 2049. And they're going to hail it as China having... China as being the dominant power on the planet, and that is 100 years of communist rule since the communists defeated the nationalists in 1949. That often gets uh, missed in commentary around the world, but for internal Chinese consumption, that's been one of the, 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 uh, the major points, or at least it was until two or three months ago. There was a there was a, a period where that was constantly struck. Now let me talk about some of what the strategic gambits are behind this. On uh, uh, as far as Beijing uh, sees it, understand that as Jim describes, some of this is they're laying out capital, it's influence, they're laying out bribe money so they can uh, buy influence around around the planet. But let's take Africa, and by the way, that the new book, Cocktails from Hell, has a chapter on Congo where it talks about uh, Congo and its uh, cobalt games. And this is an example where Jim uh, points out that <clears throat> we'll just call it OBAR since that's what we've been doing it, uh, uh, doing with the, from the start on this, uh, has other local vulnerabilities. China is no longer self-sustaining. It's no longer self-sufficient for, what, Jim, 3,000 years the Chinese would make that claim or close to it. They were but, a continental power. There you are. They, they had access. If they didn't have it right on their border, they'd go grab it. Uh, they'd go into uh, someplace and, and seize what they needed. Now, for a modern, high-tech industrial economy, they need access, guaranteed access, to uh, other other minerals. That means they why they become something of a maritime power. I say something of a maritime power. They are. They're certainly a regional maritime power. Deng Xiaoping saw this. As a matter of fact, he gave uh, a couple of, uh, of of talks about China having to uh, look to the sea, as 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 he put it. Uh, I think one is 1982-83, but it was required as part of the integrating China into the modern world, the four modernizations were going to require that China be able to uh, ensure that it, it had sea commerce access and the sea commerce uh, was secure. So uh, there's part of what Obar is about, responding to the guidance of of. Uh, Deng Xiaoping, recognizing that it's no longer self-sufficient. So what they come into Congo and they cut a deal, uh, uh, refresh my memory on this, Jim, 2008, 2009, I know we wrote about it, I wrote about it, but <clears throat> they came in and it was not clear how much money 
was going into uh, Congo. It's that's frequently dealing with Congo. How much money is coming in and how much is coming out? But it was between six and ten billion dollars. Nine billion became the the, the common figure. China was going to build infrastructure, uh, including processing, pre-processing for sure of some minerals and some processing of uh, uh, plants, and then they were going to have the infrastructure to ship it uh, ship it out to uh, 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 to ports. In exchange, China had guaranteed access to key uh, minerals, most of it uh, in Katanga, and cobalt was high on the list. Cobalt, because it's it's necessary for a lot of high-tech uh, batteries, and China was had decided they were going big in electric cars, small electric cars. That's what the Chinese people want, and the Communist Party, riding the Tiananmen Tiger, says, okay, you can have wealth, just don't fight us. Don't object to us. So those those batteries, those batteries matter because the Chinese people want want cars, and uh, these small electric cars seem to be actually a, <clears throat> a, a a good piece of technology, given what China's China's large cities and and and, and the like and, and distances. But to do that, they've got to have these uh, access to these uh, these minerals. So they come in there, they lay out, let's say, nine billion dollars. And then what does Congo do? They've been talking about it really for two years, but they did it this year. They bumped the royalties, changed pricing on it, and suddenly there's less margin. Well, there is no margin. China's having to pay more to extract. And despite spending all this money buying off Congolese uh, politicians. And I just bring that up. Was this directly tied to one belt, one road. No. But this is an example, Dan, of the kind of operations China is is conducting throughout this this grand global development uh, proposal. It's a you know grand. It's it's really has a lot of little hooks like that. Now, let's move to another strategic point. <laughs> Jim mentioned the land lines, the uh, belts. Uh, part of this is to flank India, because India sits right there in the Indian Ocean. It's not just all sea commerce. So one of the things they're driving through Central Asia and then hooking down uh, with uh, railroads and roads and even power lines into Pakistan. And they've built uh, the, the place is called Gwadar. It's not all that far from the Pakistani-Iranian uh, border. It's a it's a navy base now. The Chinese are saying it's it's a commercial base, but the difference between <clears throat> a naval facility, a deep water naval facility, and a commercial shipping facility is uh, less than two percent. You will have to have some places for special types of uh, storing special uh, types of munitions, but almost everything else is right there in place, and the Indians are aware of it. Uh, that's Gwadar has been a centerpiece of this One Belt, One Road uh, initiative. And as Jim described it, it's built primarily with Chinese labor and also protected with Chinese security guards. Dan, what's the difference between a battalion of security guards and a battalion of military police? You don't need to answer. You, know, that's, you, don't, need, you, don't, you don't need to answer. All right. So they've got, 
you know, Jim's already mentioned Sri Lanka. That's Ceylon. They've got a chain of ports. It's not quite a British chain of pearls, uh, islands, but it's got the same kind of imperialist uh, uh, resonance. Now, um, Jim made went to the analogy of Japan in, in, in 1990 and did a, a great job of showing how, hey, uh, yes, logistics and money really do uh, run, run the, uh, the world. Uh, Jim and I have had some debates over how expensive this is. He says it's $1 trillion. Well, there's plenty of things. When I was researching the book, the new book, a lot of people are suspicious of that. They say that it's $3 trillion, uh, perhaps as much as $5 trillion, and some of it is, yeah, it's being shared with these loans and you're supposedly having investment from these smaller nations uh, that are getting all this infrastructure and, and all these uh, benefits. But like I said a few minutes ago about Congo, how much goes in and how much comes out, we don't know. <clears throat> and then one of the other sources of fog uh, and opacity are these state-owned enterprises, SOEs. Uh, they're dinosaurs, but they're dinosaurs that employ a lot of Chinese workers, uh, employ a lot of loyal uh, Chinese communist technocrats, and they lack efficiency, but they need to do something. How much they really cost, who knows? Jim did a good job of showing what, why that is another, another vulnerability. Uh, one other thing, too. They've got some really exotic ideas uh, about how uh, one belt, one road, belt and road initiative might evolve. Jim mentioned some of the, the land lines of operation, uh, Southeast Asia, Central Asia, the, the Pakistani one I just went through. See, uh, primarily Southeast Asia, then it splits. They've even got a, 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 an idea about how they're going to uh, connect uh, into the Mediterranean. Of course, it'd have to go through the uh, Suez Canal. One of the landlines essentially marches across through, well, as Jim mentioned it, uh, Central Asian uh, Turkic, the various Turkic stands, uh, and it, reach, it reaches the Mediterranean. The most curious one, and this was one, as, as far as I can tell, was, was kind of uh, jived up early this year is one that goes north and goes across the Arctic Ocean to a Norwegian port. So they were going to have, based on uh, uh, re reduced Arctic ice from global warming, uh, this was going to be one of their maritime maritime roads to connect, uh, connect to Europe. And that, that was, uh, the, the government put that out. About the time they started using the the uh, the BRI acronym or the abbreviation for the uh, for the program. Uh, I would be interested, in, Jim, and in you coming back and saying Austin three to five trillion is crazy again. A no, lot no, of no. But, but a, a, tri a trillion is, is the is the is the is the basic, you know, okay. All right. minimal. So we're down it, on it, that. It, it can go up from there because they're dealing with foreign countries, which can, uh, as they found out in Southeast Asia. Uh, demand uh, different terms. Okay, we're down. We're, so we're, we're down, Dan. That's that's China's bottom line risk. Uh, it's up upside risk. 
is. So something will let Vegas give uh, some numbers up. So, Jim, how are India, Russia, and and the U.S. responding to this in, in Western well, Europe? Well, the <laughs> uh, Russia and India are, are very concerned. Both of those countries have nuclear weapons, which are now pointed at China. Uh, they don't say that because Russia, China, and India are basically on good you know, relations. Uh, India just bought a bunch of uh, warships for more frigates and other services uh, to try and uh, rescue their, their, how should I put it, their sinking uh, warship construction efforts. Uh, and they're going to pay in rupees because the uh, Russians are under the same kind of sanctions that the uh, uh, <laughs> that they've been under since t- uh, 2014. And uh, they basically can't get paid in dollars. Uh, so they're doing enough trade with India to basically you know, do a barter deal on these uh, $2 billion worth of uh, warships. So they're on good terms. Of course, the, the, the Chinese are also buying uh, a Russian S-35, SU-35 uh, fighters, the latest version of the, uh, you know, the SU-27 from the, the Cold War era. And uh, we informed the Chinese that, yes, it applies to you as well. And so the Chinese are having fits over that. Um, and uh, the, uh, the, the problem here is that these three countries are technically trading partners, allies, especially Russia and China. But they're Russia, India and, and uh, Russia are deathly afraid of Chinese uh, claims to their territory. The claims are out in the open. For India, they basically want a big chunk of, of uh, northeast India, which they claim is uh, is, uh, is was originally part of. Uh, uh, it's mostly jungle up there, uh, but it was originally part of uh, Tibet. Uh, the Indians are reinforcing their you know their military forces up there, uh, and no one knows where that's going to go. Uh, but it's dangerous. The Russians have another problem because the claims in Far Eastern Russia, north of Manchuria, uh, are real. They've been around for over a century. They came up, uh, you know, uh, over 100 years ago, for example, in the Boxer Rebellion. Uh, you know, as the empire was, was collapsing, uh, the Chinese were basically uh, criticizing the Russians uh, for um, basically encroaching on Chinese territory. And they didn't just mean Manchuria. Uh, but also for areas, you know, north of that, where a lot of stock and a lot of valuable Russian mines and, and what have you are located. Um, the uh, the China the Japanese Russia Japanese War, the Japanese replaced the Russians uh, in terms of territory Chinese territory they were taking over. I mean, the Japanese did not take the far eastern Russian areas, but they took the Chinese area, Manchuria in particular, that the Russians were basically you know, attempting to absorb. Uh, the Chinese never forgot that. They have long memories for this thing. And what people don't realize is that after World War II, when China was established in, in 1940, communist China, they basically quietly revived their claims on far eastern Russia. They didn't do anything. There were some border skirmishes in the 70s and 80s. Uh, there's a story, still not confirmed, that that uh, the Chinese asked Richard Nixon once they re-established re- re- relations, or the tried Russians asked Nixon, uh, would you mind terribly if we nuked the Chinese? And then Nixon, to his 
credit if this is true. He said, no, I, I don't think we appreciate that. Now, that may be a purely practical answer because the uh, really winds are to the east. So most of the fallout would end up in uh, you know, the west coast of uh, North America. But those claims are still there. And what the Chinese are doing, while they're not basically you know, creating a, a diplomatic fuss and uh, openly saying, you know, you're, you're, you're basically illegally in Chinese territory, they are invading it economically. The Russians always had a problem getting Russians to go live in the, in the Far East. I mean, it's it's Siberia for God's sake. It's frozen. I mean, it's it's the it's north, far northern Canada, uh, the north slope of Alaska. You know, it's that sort of thing. It doesn't attract a lot of people. You know, who are looking for a nice place to settle down and raise a family. Uh, and as soon as the Soviet Union went poof, so did a lot of the Russian population in the Russian Far East. They're still having a hard time getting people out there. The Chinese, on the other hand. They, of course, the Russians wanted to stay on uh, after the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union. The Russians couldn't, beggars can't be choosers. And the Chinese said, do you mind if we, you know, export good, needed goods in the, in the Russian Far East? You can't get it out here, but, but we can. The Russians said, okay, now, you know, you want to buy clothing, uh, shoes, you name it, uh, the household appliances, they're Chinese. Better quality, lower prices, quick delivery, bingo. Um so, you know, think of the Chinese as they, you know, as, as the Amazon of, uh, you know, uh, of Far Eastern Russia. They're taking the place over because they simply give better service. The Chinese are also moving in Chinese now. A lot of these are basically illegal aliens. But again, the Russians don't want to disturb the Chinese. It's bad PR to round up Chinese who are not supposed to be there and push them back across the border. But bit by bit. The Chinese are taking over. They're even buying or at least leasing land. The one of the latest gambits was to put out to uh, long-term lease. Uh, what was it? Five hundred thousand hectares. A lot, a lot. We're talking about a lot of farmland in the, the Russian Far East that the Russians could never get enough Russians to go out there and farm. I mean, basically, basically, it's like you know, northern Canada. You know, the the the, the wheat belt uh, in 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 the Saskatchewan or have you. It's it's a tough area. To farm, but if you know how to do it, you can do it. And the Russians figured it out, uh, but they couldn't get any Russians to do it. The Chinese came in, sure, we'll do it. And they got a couple other countries basically boarded on this deal, but most of those leases were taken by the Chinese, and bingo, Chinese are now raising crops in the Russian Far Eastern enterprise. So the Russians are not stupid, they can see where this is going. But with all the other problems they're having, you know, trying to grab Ukraine, rebuild the empire, yada, yada. Uh, they can't complain. They can't basically say, hey, stop. Uh, that's a vulnerability, which I think we're starting to exploit on, uh, on Russia. You know, uh, American diplomacy has taken a more effective turn, you know, in the last couple of years. Uh, I mean, the, the revised NAFTA, as Austin pointed out, uh, is basically uh, uh, takes away some of the Chinese opportunities in North America. Uh, but that's the, the, the trade, the, the trade war, as it were, with China right now is doing the same thing with the trade relationships between China and the United States. Now, most yep. people don't understand that, but it's basically taking back what China basically grabbed while we weren't looking in the first place. Jim, could I make a, a point uh, about that trade trade deal and yeah. American diplomacy? Which uh, okay. uh, look, uh, Dan, one of the things it does is set up 
other similar trade deals that do the same thing to, uh, to China. It's not just North America. The fact that you can get Mexico and Canada, despite all the stuff the media had to say about it, to agree with something is, is that th th these deals that the United States and Canada and Mexico we have among themselves are good for all three of the countries. I mean, that, that's the, the, what was changed with the initiative from uh, uh, the, 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 the current administration are ways that third parties like China could uh, take, advantage, uh, take advantage of it to the disadvantage, primarily of the United States, but disadvantage to other American trading partners as well. And that's, that's one of the things that's brilliant about it. Now, I'll be quiet, but Jim, that's, you know that's what's been done. Yes, and, and, that, and that makes the Chinese very angry. Uh, and basically, it makes the Russians feel a little good. And I think that is being quietly exploited, as it were. Uh, we go to the Russians and say, hey, look, long term, we're better, you're better off being our friends uh, because you know who your real enemy is. Never, you know, This NATO nonsense is BS, and you know it. Uh, you can read any newspaper you know, in Western Europe for the last you know, uh, 25 years, and there's never anything about, hey, let's drag knock Austin. Let's go to the east. Uh, that's the last thing anybody wants. Um, and uh, your real enemy is, as it has been for over a thousand years, you had the Mongol incident, as it were, <laughs> and the Russians have never forgotten that. Uh, and now it's happening again uh, from, from the Chinese, not the Mongols. Uh, and the Chinese, they really don't want to, you know, they don't want to admit it. But on the street, you know, in Russia, especially out in the Far East, they know what the threat is. Uh, and eventually the Russians are going to have to admit that we have a problem, which I which is probably one of the five steps or whatever, in a, or whatever, the steps in a 12-step program, recovery from, uh, from uh, you know, Cold War uh, nostalgia disease. Uh, it's a new syndrome. Uh, they've got to get out of that, you know, and realize that they're, they're the real threat is the one to the east, not to the west. Dan, I'm going to have to go, but let me make one other uh, one other point off of what Jim said. The Russians seeing the Chinese as their real threat, and he mentioned the Mongols. The Mongols see the Chinese as a threat. <laughs> the Mon Mongols, well, I mean, it's it's totally ironic, but they do. Yes. They they don't well, like the, they don't like the Russians as they're behaving now. But the Mongols desperately say we want to have the United States and Japan as allies. Go yeah. figure. The Chinese the Chinese have long memories. And uh, they, 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 they adopt the Italian, the ancient Roman uh, approach to revenge. It's a dish best served cold, very cold. It's a thousand years old. Ah, now it's delicious. Um, and uh, the Mongols are aware of that. They did a number. They had a, they had a dynasty in China, uh, which did a lot of damage. Um, and the Chinese don't forget. Yep. Well, we'll wrap it up there and uh, continue to follow this. Uh, we mention it often on strategy page because it's it's something that's going to affect uh, strategic <clears throat> initiatives by all of these countries over the next uh, decades so thank you very much and we'll talk to you next time bye guys bye bye, -bye.